Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number seven, the book of Acts, chapters two and three. We're going to close out Acts chapter 2 and open Acts chapter 3 today. But first, as is our custom, let's quickly review our previous lesson. One of the most memorable features of the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell believers on Pentecost, Shavuot, was that the 12 disciples along with the 120 other believers present began to speak in foreign languages that were unknown to them. Now the word used in that era to mean a language was tongue. Tongues referred only to natural human languages just as we think of them. English, French, Spanish, Hebrew, Russian, Arabic, so on. Now today the church calls this phenomenon speaking in tongues. And there is a a substantial theological and, and denominational disagreement over whether this particular spiritual gift is still appropriate for our time, if it still exists, and for some it is thought that a believer must possess it as evidence of being saved. Was there a reason, was there a precedent for this ecstatic speech event to occur at Pentecost in conjunction with the presence of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And indeed there was. Because back in Moses' day, we found in Numbers chapter 11 that when God put the Holy Spirit upon, not within, upon the 70 elders that Moses had appointed to help him guide God's people through the wilderness, they all spontaneously started uttering ecstatic speech. And since it is said that some of the spirit that was upon Moses was by an act of God shared with the 70 elders, then we understand that this is the same spirit that's being shared and not a different one or ones. So we have at Pentecost with the Messianic believers in Jerusalem a nearly identical happening as occurred 13 centuries earlier with Moses and his elders during the exodus from Egypt. Now there was an important divine purpose for the Holy Spirit enabling these followers of Christ to speak different languages on this particular occasion. Thousands of visiting religious Jews had come to Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire on a God-mandated annual pilgrimage. The required pilgrimage, uh, pilgrimage was to celebrate the biblical festival of Shavuot at the temple. And these diaspora Jews each spoke a language that was native to whichever country they came from. That is, most did not speak Hebrew nor Aramaic. The two common languages of the Holy Land Jews, including that of the twelve disciples. So without this miracle of languages, what the Lord was revealing through the believers about Yeshua and about the Holy Spirit could not have been understood by these many thousands of visiting foreign Jews. 
Now we also discussed that in one of his letters to the Corinthians, Paul addressed this issue of speaking in tongues head on because it was causing dissension among the new believers at Corinth. And that same dissension continues among Christian denominations to our day. We read in passages from 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14, and we saw that Paul certainly commended those who spoke in tongues. But he also nuanced it by saying that speaking in tongues wasn't meant to be universal among believers because it was but one of a range of gifts and abilities that the Holy Spirit endowed the faithful with. So the exact gifting of each believer that each believer might receive from the Spirit was done strictly at the sovereign choice of the Spirit. Now Paul concluded that speaking in tongues was not even the greatest among the spiritual gifts. However, without saying which gift was the greatest or the least, he did say that prophesying was greater than tongues. Then we learned that prophesying in the New Testament era did not usually mean to foretell the future as it did in Old Testament times. Nor did it have the alternate Old Testament meaning meaning of adding to Holy Scripture. Rather, in New Testament times, prophesying meant to expound upon the existing Scriptures, the Old Testament, the Tanakh, that was believed to be closed up, completed, no more to be added. In modern terms, that would mirror what uh, the, the authors of the New Testament felt prophesying merely means to properly interpret the Bible and to teach it. Let's reread part of Acts chapter 2. Open your Bibles to page 1362 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Acts chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 33. Moreover, he has been exalted to the right hand of God, has received from the Father what he promised, namely the Ruach HaKodesh, and has poured out this gift which you are both seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says, Adonai said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let the whole house of Israel know beyond doubt that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Yeshua, whom you executed on a stake. On hearing this, they were stung in their hearts. They said to Kepha, to the other emissaries, Brothers, what should we do? And Kepha answered them, Turn from sin. Return to God. And each of you be immersed on the authority of Yeshua the Messiah into forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Ruach HaKodesh. Because the promise is for you, for all your children, for those far away, as many as Adonai, our God, may call. He pressed his case with many other arguments and he kept pleading with them. Save yourselves from this perverse generation 
So those who accepted what he said were immersed, and there were added to the group that day about 3,000 people. They continued faithfully in the teaching of the emissaries, in fellowship, in breaking bread, and in prayers. Everyone was filled with awe. Many miracles and signs took place through the emissaries. All those trusting in Yeshua stayed together and had everything in common. In fact, they sold their property and possessions and distributed the proceeds to all who were in need. Continuing faithfully with singleness of purpose to meet in the temple courts daily. After breaking bread in their several homes, they shared their food in joy and simplicity of heart, praising God and having the respect of all the people. And day after day, the Lord kept adding to them those who were being saved. The first verses we just read bring up the issue of the role of King David in regards to the Messiah. And in verses that come just before these passages... Peter begins to explain that the Messiah would be eternal, but that King David had died, and he was buried, and his tomb was just a few hundred yard, a few hundred meters from where they were standing. So it's obvious King David wasn't the Messiah since he's not alive, and he has not bodily descended into heaven to sit at God's right hand. However, Yeshua, who was killed, arose from the dead and then ascended into heaven, leaving no trace of himself behind. And he is a descendant of King David, and he is the Messiah. And Peter admonishes his listeners that many of them were eyewitnesses to the signs and miracles of Yeshua. So there shouldn't be any doubt in them. Now these signs and miracles fulfilled the prophecies of the several Old Testament prophets concerning the Messiah and even those prophecies of King David. Thus, this is the proof that Yeshua of Nazareth is the Messiah. He is Lord and King. He is eternal. He is currently in heaven with Jehovah, His Father. But then Peter hits him with a roundhouse right to the jaw. He says to these Jews, Messiah is this Yeshua whom you executed on a stake. Well, Peter's eloquent argument and his accusation of responsibility to the Jews who were listening to him had its effect. Many realized their guilt and their shame, especially the local Judean Jews that were among the crowd. What now? They bore guilt mostly in a communal sense, for killing God's Messiah. So how could they possibly survive this unforgivable trespass? Notice their response to Peter. Brothers, what should we do? Peter told them to first turn from their sins. Second, return to God. And third, be immersed baptized on the authority of Yeshua. And if they will do these three things, they will be forgiven. Of course, what Peter is talking about is the kind of repentance that's acceptable to God. But the Jewish crowd's reaction to Peter's condemnation of them 
makes it clear that they inherently understood that repentance, repentance is above all else an action. They asked what to do, not what to pray, not what to think. So Peter said they were to behaviorally turn from their sins, actively return to obeying God in their lives, and to hurry to be baptized in the name of Yeshua. All of these things were tangible actions, not a change in feelings or or merely a passive change of mind or heart. The idea of repentance as concrete behavioral change at all levels of our lives has been all but lost in Christianity. However, don't think that this mistaken mindset that that feelings and words of repentance are as good or as maybe even better than making actual life changes only happens in our day and age. Listen to this passage written by John Chrysostom around 400 A.D., taken from his work titled Homilies on the Acts of the Apostles. He says this, What shall we do? Well, they did what must be done, but we do the opposite. They condemned themselves, and they despaired of their salvation. This is what made them such as they were. They knew what gift they had received, But how do you become like them when you do everything in an opposite spirit? As soon as they heard, they were baptized. They did not speak cold words that we do now, nor did they contrive delays even though they had heard all the requirements. For they did not hesitate when they were commanded to save yourselves from this generation, but they welcomed it. They showed their welcome through their action. They proved it through their deeds, what sort of people they were. See, repentance not only requires action, the substance of true repentance is action. To say you have repented, but it's not reflected in any discernible way in your life? Only God can know if He's forgiven you. But how can those around you think that whatever you piously claim is any more than cold words, says John Christostom, if they see no positive change in you? I tell you frankly, I have seen many claim repentance and Christ, but few do more than talk the talk. In the late 90s, in a CNN interview, Billy Graham lamented that in their follow-up from his crusades that made him a household word and a giant in Christendom, It revealed that of all those hundreds of thousands who left their seats to come and surround the stage and and pray the sinner's prayer, fewer than 3% showed any signs of continuing on with what they professed. And just as 
a reformed alcoholic or a drug addict can listen to the pleading words of a substance abuser and know whether they are sincere or their words are just emotion driven or maybe even manipulation so a person who at one time thought they were saved but suddenly realized that their own actions reflect no fruit of the Spirit in their lives, no discernible outward commitment to Christ, can often recognize that same thing in others. I'm a very good example of this. I was raised in a Christian household to model parents. I can't ever recall a time in my life that I didn't know who Jesus was. We went to church as a family. I never heard a bad word from my mother or my father. I never heard them argue with one another, ever. They were highly regarded and trusted in the community. They were kind. They were sweet. We were taught godly principles. Our household was quiet and safe and stable and loving. I was baptized, like so many on a number of occasions. But in my late 30s, my life was plunged into chaos and to despair. And all at once, in a catastrophe that I can only visualize as like the World Trade Center collapsing all at once into a heap of dust and rubble, I instantly realized that the cause and the fault of my predicament was my own. I had talked the talk with the best of them. I had never walked the walk of a believer. There was no fruit. I hadn't endeavored to be different from the world, but rather to be as much like it as possible. I never considered my life in relation to the Lord. Never. No one would ever have guessed my claim of Christianity unless I told them. And I hardly ever did. I doubt they would have believed me anyway. But in my despair, I realized that while I knew who Christ was, I had never sincerely repented of my sins, nor had any serious intention of following His ways. I had merely tried to sort of disguise those sins with a thin covering of mouthed words, but did nothing to back it up. I took salvation for granted, something cheaply gained, therefore only lightly valued. I prayed the prayer of forgiveness to relieve some guilt for a while, giving me a false sense of security, and then I just continued on as before. Now, while I can't be 100% certain, as I reflect, I do not think I was saved. I had lived a self-deception for most of my life, but God could not have been fooled. Yet out of the ashes came a different person, a restored person who learned the hard way that repentance is action. It's not cold words. 
Repentance is real, actual, visible change. The proof of repentance lies in a commitment not to repeat those same offenses. See, Peter learned that. John Chrysostom must have learned that. And so did I. And it is my earnest hope and prayer that you will too and not have to experience disaster before you do. But getting back to our passage. Let's think about what it was that so worried those religious Jews that they yelled out to Peter, What should we do? They had accepted some level of culpability for the death of Yeshua, but at the same time, everyone knew they hadn't personally killed Yeshua, nor necessarily even called for his death. Even so, the Torah and the altar offer no possibility of atonement for murder or for those in conspiracy to murder or for those who offer false testimony against an innocent who is then convicted of a capital crime and put to death. See, the law offers no atonement also for blasphemy against God. (laughs) What could be more blasphemous than to reject, let alone conspire to kill God's Son? I mean, one could repent, even change, be entirely sincerely sorry, but no atonement was available in the Levitical sacrificial system for what the English Bible often labels as intentional or high-handed sins. Thus their guilt and their separation of God clung to them like a stain. It couldn't be removed at any price. But Peter offered them a way out. Notice in verse 38. Peter says, And each of you be immersed on the authority of Yeshua the Messiah into what? Forgiveness of sins. The insolvable was solved if the name of Yeshua was invoked. Peter's instruction telling them to be immersed, to be baptized, was, as David Stern says it, to be absorbed completely and accept totally the work and the power and the authority and the person of Yeshua the Messiah. That's what it meant. If one does this, then forgiveness of sins occurs, even for sins that up to now were not forgivable by any means offered by the Torah law. 3,000 people rushed to accept what Peter offered them that day and they were immersed into the name and the lordship of Yeshua. But to whom is this kind of forgiveness available? In verse 39, Peter says, For the promise is for you, for your children, and for those far away, as many as God may call. Where did Peter get this idea from? You just think it up? Just as with all of his other premises, he got it from Holy Scripture. We discussed last time how the prophet Isaiah 
especially in chapters 2, 55, and 56, greatly influenced Peter's theology. But here, Peter paraphrases Genesis 28, verses 13 and 14. This is a story of Jacob before God renamed him Israel. There we read, Then suddenly Adonai was standing there next to him and he said, I am Adonai, the God of Avraham, your grandfather, and the God of Yitzhak. The land on which you are lying, I will give to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the grains of dust on the earth. You will expand to the east and to the west, you will to the north, to the south. By you and your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham had many years earlier been promised that the covenant God made with him would be passed down to his descendants. Jacob was the recipient of that promise and now it would flow onward from him. Peter says, for the promise is for you. See, for the Jewish people, the promise was a well-understood buzzword that meant the covenant God had made with Abraham. For indeed, this covenant was a promise. It put no conditions upon Abraham. It only made guarantees to Abraham. Peter as does God's promise to Abraham, says, this promise is for your children, your descendants, as well, but also for those far away. Who are those who are far away? Now, it is common in Christianity to say this is referring to Gentiles. And then use Isaiah 57.19 as the proof text for this. However, as I've demonstrated to you over the years, you can't just willy-nilly lift verses or portions of a verse from the scriptures and use them to validate predetermined agendas. Indeed, there is no doubt from many other verses in the Old Testament, such as we found in Isaiah 56, about foreigners being able to join the God of Israel. And from several more in the New Testament that under certain conditions, Gentiles can be partakers in Israel's blessings and promises given through Israel's covenants with Jehovah. However, I don't think that is at all what Peter had in mind here. For one reason, it wouldn't be until a later time that God would deal with Peter in a dream vision. Remember this? When the Lord lowered that cloth filled with unclean animals and he told Peter to choose and to eat. It wasn't until then that Peter finally understood that Gentiles were to be actively included into the body of Messiah. Something he was reluctant to accept. The verse in Isaiah 57 that Christianity nearly universally says is what Peter was quoting and is is speaking about the inclusion of Gentiles is this one. I will create the right words. Shalom, shalom to those far off and to those nearby says Adonai, I'll heal them. So the doctrinal idea is that those who are far off in this passage and thus those who Peter is speaking about are Gentiles. Jews are near, Gentiles are far off. I don't accept that interpretation. Especially when one reads this verse in context. 
Isaiah 51, 57.1-3 The righteous person perishes and nobody gives it a thought. Godly men are taken away. No one understands that the righteous person is taken away from the evil yet to come. Yet those who live uprightly will have peace as they rest on their couches. But you, you witches' children, come here, you spawn of adulterers and whores. And then moving on down further in the chapter, starting at verse 16. For I will not fight them forever or always nurse my anger, otherwise their spirits would faint before me, the creatures I myself have made. It was because of their flagrant greed that I was angry and struck them. I hid myself and was angry, but they continued on their own rebellious ways. I've seen their ways. I'll heal them. I will lead them and give comfort to them and those who mourn for them. I'll create the right words. Shalom, shalom to those far off and those nearby, says Adonai, I'll heal them. See, this is an obvious reference to Israel's exiles. God is speaking about Israel, those who rebelled. Gentiles aren't rebels because they were never part of His chosen people and the God of Israel was not their God. Those who are near are those Jews who live in the Holy Land. Those who are far off are those Hebrew exiles in the diaspora scattered about the Roman Empire and beyond. This includes then the house of Judah and the ten tribes of the house of Ephraim Israel. So when Peter spoke of those far off, it was of the diaspora Jews and the ten tribes who had yet to return. Peter's entire attention was focused on the twelve tribes of Israel and no one else yet. Well, verse 42 then moves on uh, beyond this, this day of Pentecost to now what occurred afterwards. And in this verse is yet another premise that Christians often use to establish a dubious doctrine. Here we read... They continued faithfully in the teaching of the emissaries, in fellowship, and in breaking bread, and in the prayers. Now this verse is pretty straightforward, so what I'm going to focus on is the reference to the breaking of bread. See, beginning with the early Roman church, most of Christianity from that time forward says that the breaking bread is referring to what today is known as communion. It is decidedly not about communion. Within Judaism, then as now, the breaking of bread stands for the blessing over what is the basic food staple at most tables, bread. And the symbolism is that God sustains life with this provision of sustenance. In the Talmudic tractate, Berkot, which means benedictions, we find this rather standard understanding of the breaking of bread by the host of the meal. Listen to this. The host breaks the bread and the guest says grace after the meal. The host breaks bread so that he should do so generously and the guest says grace so that he should bless the host. The guest may not eat anything until the one who breaks the bread is tasted. The one who has broken bread stretches out his hand first, but if he wishes to show respect to his teacher and to anyone senior to himself, he may do so. And the one who acts as host may not break bread until the guests have finished responding, Amen. See, before the host breaks the bread, a blessing is pronounced. Which is why the guests must say, Amen, to the blessing. Then afterward, the host breaks 
to bread. I say again, breaking bread has no reference, no connection to the Gentile Roman Christian sacrament of communion. The breaking of bread was in ancient times, in Peter's day, and remains to this day as a common Jewish mealtime ritual tradition. All Peter was getting at was that the believers ate their meals together and they did so in the standard and customary Jewish way. Thus, while Christianity tries to show Peter as moving away from his Jewishness by this breaking of bread, the meaning is the exact opposite. In fact, verse 46 further clarifies the matter. In Acts 2.46 it says, Continuing faithfully and with singleness of purpose to meet in the temple courts daily and breaking bread in their several homes, they shared their food in joy and simplicity of heart. Notice this as well. It says the disciples continued to meet where? Every day. In the temple. F.F. Bruce and his New International Commentary on the book of Acts says this about what this verse tells us. He says, The apostles continued to live as observant Jews. That sums it up about as well as it can be. Let's move on to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1363. Acts chapter 3. One afternoon at 3 o'clock, the hour of Micha prayers, as Kepha and Yochanan, it's Peter and John, were going up to the temple, a man crippled, crippled since birth was being carried in. Every day people used to put him at the beautiful gate of the temple so that he could beg from those going into the temple court. And when he saw Kepha and Yochanan about to enter, he asked them for some money, but they stared straight at him. And Kepha said, Look at us. The crippled man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And Kepha said, I don't have silver and I don't have gold, but what I do have I'll give to you. In the name of the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth, walk. And taking hold of him by his right hand, Kepha pulled him up. Instantly his feet and ankles became strong. So that he sprang up, he stood a moment, and he began walking. Then he entered the temple court with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Everyone saw him walking and praising God. They recognized him as the same man who had formerly sat begging at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were utterly amazed. They were confounded at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Kepha and Yochanan, all the people came running in astonishment towards them, and Shlomo's Solomon's colonnade. Seeing this, Kepha addressed the people. Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you stare at us as if we'd made this man walk through some power or godliness of our own? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Yeshua. The same Yeshua you handed over and disowned before Pilate even after he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and innocent one and instead asked for the reprieve of a murderer. You killed the author of life. But God has raised him from the dead. 
of this we are witnesses. And it is through putting trust in His name that His name has given strength to this man whom you see and you know. Yes, it is the trust that comes through Yeshua which has given Him this perfect healing in the presence of you all. Now brothers, I know you did not understand the significance of what you were doing and neither did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what He had announced in advance when He spoke through all the prophets, namely, that His Messiah was to die. Therefore repent, turn to God so that your sins may be erased, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord's presence, and He may send the Messiah appointed in advance for you, that is Yeshua. Now He has to remain in heaven until the time comes for restoring everything, as God said long ago when He spoke through the holy prophets. For Moshe himself said, Adonai will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You are listen to everything He tells you. Everyone who fails to listen to that prophet will be removed from the people and destroyed. Indeed, all the prophets announced these days, starting with Shmuel, Samuel, and continuing through all who followed. You are the sons of the prophets. And you are included in the covenant which God made with our fathers when He said to Abraham, By your seed will all the families of the earth be blessed. So it is to you first that God has sent His servant whom He's raised up, so that He might bless you by turning each one of you from your evil ways. Now in the previous chapter, chapter 2, verse 43 said that after Pentecost, many miracles and signs took place through the disciples. Well, here in chapter 3, we see one of these miracles being played out. Verse 1 opens with Peter and John making their customary daily journey to the temple. As good observant Jews, they are going at the time of afternoon prayer, variously described in English Bibles as occurring at the ninth hour or three in the afternoon. It's the same thing. The Hebrews had, since their time of exile in Babylon, and the creation of the synagogue system prayed three times per day. The morning prayer was called Shachrit, the afternoon prayer Mecha, and the evening prayer Marif. Where did this concept of praying three times per day as the proper number of times, where did this come from? It came from the prophet Daniel while he was a Babylonian captive. And Daniel... 6.11, we read this. On learning that the document had been signed, Daniel went home, and the windows of his upstairs room were open in the direction of Yerushalayim. And there he kneeled down three times a day and prayed, giving thanks before his God, just as he had been doing before. So from this single verse, upon the earliest beginnings of the synagogue system up in Babylon, the religious Jews face all synagogues in the direction of Jerusalem and they pray three times per day. Now one of the several reasons that Jews might go to the temple was to be present 
at the twice daily altar sacrifices. These uh, particular sacrifices occurred in the morning and in the evening and called the tamid sacrifices, meaning regular or daily, the priests performed these seven days per week, rain or shine, on behalf of all Israel. What should be noticed is that while the Torah prescribes a certain number of sacrificial offerings each day for Israel, it does not prescribe a certain number of times of daily prayer. Rather, the three times per day prayer protocol was part of the liturgy that had been developed in the synagogue system. But at some point, it had become adopted by the temple authorities. Now the reason I even mention this is to remind us that the synagogue system was a man-made system created in response to the predicament of the Babylonian exiles. At that time, the temple was destroyed. The the priesthood was defunct. And most Jews were sent away out of the Holy Land to Babylon. Therefore, there was no means to observe the Torah-required purity rituals or to atone for sins by means of altar sacrifices. There was no one to teach the Torah. No one, no, no one to have authority. No one, no, rather, no place for, for worship, no place for teaching to occur. Therefore, the synagogue evolved as a means to have an alternative religious structure. The synagogue would develop new teachers of God's Word to be a place for Jews to worship apart from the pagan worship centers of Babylon and simply to meet and have fellowship. These are all good and worthy things. The problem arose when alternative means for atonement were invented and declared by the synagogue authorities. This was in no way authorized by God or by His Torah. Prayer and Torah study were now said to be the new means of atonement for sins, even though the scriptures allow no alternative. New rituals, new liturgy was developed, and a a religious leadership that was not organized or manned by Levitical priests was formed. The troublesome issue is that once the Jews were freed from their captivity and the temple was rebuilt and the priesthood was reorganized and the altar sacrifices were resumed and everything at the temple in Jerusalem was again functioning as it should, the synagogue system was not disbanded. Rather, the Jews now had two different religious authority systems that function separately. Now some commentators have tried to describe the two systems as being complementary and thus always well. Now all you have to do is read a little bit of Jewish history or even the New Testament to see that the temple and the synagogue systems were in many ways competitors, if not antagonists. So as often happens compromises were made for the sake of peace or to make the people feel more comfortable. The three times per day prayer at the temple was one of these many compromises. Now Luke's story 
of a miracle healing begins as Peter and John are at the temple and a crippled man is carried in by his friends to what was no doubt his usual begging station which was at the beautiful gate. We're told that he was born crippled meaning he suffered from some sort of congenital birth defect. Now, where is the beautiful gate? A Hebrew word for beautiful is Yafe. Yafe. And when you Englishize Yafe, you get Jaffa. So, some have tried to say that the Jaffa gate in Jerusalem is the beautiful gate of our story. I've taken many of you through that gate. And I'm sorry to inform you that is not the gate that our crippled man was laying at. For one reason, the Jaffa Gate came much later. For another, it's nowhere near the temple grounds. Likely the Jaffa Gate, the beautiful gate, is what is also known in the Mishnah as the Nicanor Gate or the Bronze Gate or the Corinthian Gate. It was located near the court of the women on the temple grounds. Its nickname, the beautiful gate, came because of its special magnificence. Josephus tells us that it was made out of ornate bronze inlaid with gold and silver and it was the most spectacular of the several gates on the temple grounds. Well, begging, you see, was fully condoned, even licensed in this day. Laziness was not tolerated and neither was faking a disability. Hence, the licensing. In fact, giving alms to beggars was considered to be an important part of Judaism. Let's remember that there was no government welfare fell, fair, I'll get that out, government welfare or disability payment system. Charity. This was the only way the sick and the lame could survive if they were from poor families. The Torah law is clear that the less fortunate were to be cared for. Otherwise, they could cry out to God and the guilt would be placed upon those who refused to help them. Now, this story of the crippled man that John and Peter encounter is laden with information that I don't want to hurry through. So, we'll conclude for now. And we'll take up this story next time.